So we are in the seven letters of the churches in the book of Revelation. And as we've been going through these letters, we've been pointing out that, the, uh, that John, who wrote this book, arranged these churches in a specific order so that the first church and the last church were churches uh, that were about to have their witness taken out by the Lord because they had lost their ability to witness to culture at all. And the middle uh, churches, the, the second and the fifth churches, were churches that were so were heavily under persecution, uh, and that persecution had actually purified them so that their witness was super strong, even though they were very weak in, personally as a church, the strength of God was able to pour through them. And then there's three churches in the middle, and I'm calling the three churches in the middle the messy middle, because these are churches that are like, these, this is real church. It's a mixture of truth and error. It's just how a church really is in the real world, how it was in the first century and how it is today. So today we're going to look at the church of Thyatira, and some of those things that they struggled with are very similar to the things that we struggle with as well, and so we have a lot that we can learn from them. So would you, if you're able, please stand out of respect uh, for the reading of God's word. This is from uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. One of my favorite books, I like to joke by saying that one of my favorite Christian apologetic books, uh, a book uh, defending or that's helpful to presenting the faith and defending the faith in our culture is a book that was written by an agnostic sociologist, a man named Jonathan Haidt, called The Righteous Mind. And what I love about this book is it blows up the Western cultural narrative that we use our reason uh, that we, are, what we, that we are able to use our reason to find the truth. And rather than that, he has, through um, practice of sociology and uh, through test cases and studies, 
uh, he's pretty much proven that basically what we do is we use our faculties of reason to make uh, and construct elaborate arguments to defend the things that our heart wants to be true, whether they're true or not. That is like the classic MO of humans, of people in the world. Uh, and this happens all the time. It happens uh, in science, it happens in sociology, uh, and it happens in the church. It happens in theology, too. Everybody is susceptible to this. For example, in the early colonial history of the United States, uh, before, uh, in the early, early colonial times of the United States, they used to practice... You know, something called indentured servitude, meaning that if you were poor, you were living in Europe, you could sell yourself into slavery, basically, for seven years, and that would pay for your ticket to come to the United States. Uh, you would work for seven years, and at the end of that time, you would be freed, you would be given some land, you would be given supplies, uh, and then you would go on your way as a, as a free citizen. Uh, the first, uh, even the first 19 or 20 African slaves that were brought to the United States uh, that were stolen from another ship and brought here, uh, because they had been baptized, they were considered as Christians and not allowed to be placed under uh, the awful institution of slavery, and they were treated the same way. They were, they were, they were indentured servitudes and servants for seven years. At the end of that time, they were given land, they were given resources, uh, and they were, then became free men that, uh, that lived in the United States. However, as time went on, economic conditions in Europe got better. Less and less people wanted to do that. Uh, and they also had a problem of when indentured servants would run away. It was very difficult to find the runaway Irish indentured, indentured servant. But it was very easy to find the African one. And what happened was over the course of time and over a progression of compromises and errors, Christian people slowly developed the awful and terrible system of kidnapping uh, oppression of chattel slavery that became slavery in the United States. Uh, And they all justified it as being completely compatible with Christian faith. And the arguments they used, in retrospect, looking back on it, were silly. But in the pressure, in the economic pressure, uh, in the greed, in the sin, in the, in the desires of their hearts, they made these arguments and people believed them. Why? Not because they were necessarily strong arguments, but because they wanted them so much to be true. Uh, and here's the kicker. That happened simultaneously with what we call the Great Awakening. Those two things were happening side by side in the United States, which shows us that there can be churches, that churches, the church is capable of, at one point, in certain things, being incredibly faithful and then have huge blind spots in other areas that cause them to justify things that are wicked, things that are evil, things that are destructive. Uh, And at the time, some churches defended slavery. Uh, A lot of churches just 
ignored it, didn't say anything about it. Very, very few churches called it out for the evil that it was at first. What's the point? The point is that given the right conditions, given the right social climate, given the right cultural pressure, given the right economic security, given the right opportunity of confluence of conditions, the church has the capacity to justify just about anything. And it has. Uh, And that still happens today. That's really the messy middle. That at the same time, we could be very faithful in some things, we could have huge blind spots because of cultural pressure that will cause us to be very unfaithful in other things. Uh, And that was true about the churches in Asia Minor. It was true about the churches all throughout the history of the church age, and it's still true for us. Uh, Given just the right social climate, just the right economic insecurity, just the right cultural pressure and fear, uh, we have the ability to develop and to create uh, blind spots that cause some churches to justify things that are evil. That's what happened in Thyatira. That's what happens to us today. And so we have a lot to learn from, from this passage about Thyatira. The first thing we have to learn is, is this, that given the right cultural pressure, the church can learn to justify just about anything. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you have been invited to your uh, Christmas, your corp- the Christmas party for your corporation that you work for, and you show up to the Christmas party, and once you get there, you and your wife get there, you discover that your, your boss is a neo-pagan, and as part of the Christmas celebration dinner, they're going to sacrifice an animal to Odin, and everyone has handed out small animals, and you are expected to go ahead and sacrifice this animal to this Norse god, and everyone's watching you. And if you don't do it, you'll lose your job. you lose your livelihood. you lose your ability to support your family. And then after uh, the sacrifice, you and your wife are expected to continue into uh, the other festivities worshiping the pagan gods that night. What would you do? Would you do it? Would you not do it? I mean, it's easy to abstractly say, I wouldn't do it, but in, your, in the moment, think about that. You're going to become, you lose, your, lose everything. Second thought experiment. Imagine that you and your family and your coworkers and your friends have gone to the 4th of July parade somewhere coming up. In the middle of the 4th of July parade, the majorettes go by, the high school band, the Marines go by, and then coming up right in the middle, the biggest float of all is the Planned Parenthood float. And everyone, as it passes by, walks out and gives a donation of money to the people on the float. And everybody's watching you, and they notice if you do it or not. And if you don't do it, you become an outcast. You become a social pariah. You'll be considered almost a traitor. What would you do? Would you do it? Would you not do it? (sighs) 
Well, that's what's happening in Thyatira, and that's what's happening in all these churches throughout uh, Asia Minor that Jesus is addressing. Especially in Thyatira, they had trade guilds so that you were a silversmith or you produced wool or you were uh, in any sort of trade. That trade had a patron god. And as part of that trade, you would have to go to these trade guild dinners and part of that trade guild dinner meant that you would have to sacrifice to these pagan gods and participate uh, in this pagan god worship. And what pagan god worship was imitating what the gods did. The gods were capricious, uh, promiscuous, pansexual, and their activities were what created the seasons. Their activities were what produced the harvest. And so worship of those gods meant doing what they did and participating in that. And if you didn't, there might not be a harvest. And if there wasn't a harvest, there wouldn't be wealth. If there wasn't wealth, there wouldn't be money for a military. If there wasn't a military, there wouldn't be safety. And so if you didn't participate in those things, you were looked upon in the same moral light as we would see someone who sold our military secrets or nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union or worse. You would be seen as a traitor who was endangering everybody else in that society. If you didn't do it, you would be outcast. That's the kind of pressure, that is the outside pressure uh, that was on all of those churches. What were they going to do? Not only that, but they had these parades that would come through your neighborhood. There would be a parade uh, that would come through your neighborhood. It would stop in front of everybody's house. Everybody was expected to walk out and offer tribute to Caesar, offer tribute to the local gods, offer tribute to Apollo. And if you didn't do it, your your neighbors would notice that you were a traitor, you were downright unpatriotic, and you would become an outcast. So what do you do if you're a Christian in that environment? What do you do? That's what Jezebel and the Nicolaitans, what they did was they came up with very reasonable sounding reasons why it was that Christians could fully participate in all of the pagan worship of their time and that it was still somehow fully compatible with Christian faith. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what those arguments were, but they assured people, you can, comp- you can participate in the dinners, you can participate in the idolatry, you can participate in all of the sexual immorality that goes along with that, and it's completely compatible with your Christian faith. Here's why, don't worry about it. Now, there's no trade guilds in San Diego that we have to deal with, but there's cultural pressure on us. There's tons of cultural pressure on the church to become enlightened and to see things the way the world sees it, to adopt the values that the world has, to adopt what the world values, to worship what the world worships, and to embrace the sexual liberation that the world has embraced. And if you don't, uh, do that, there's cultural pressure on you. Have you, you know, have you noticed? Have you felt it?
you know, here's the thing. Those, there are, there are churches and people, leaders in the church, who come up with very reasonable sounding reasons why it's perfectly okay for Christians to participate in all of those things without it affecting our Christian faith at all. That they're completely compatible. And man, uh, if you're someone who is like prone to some of those sins or you're struggling with some of those sins in certain ways, those reasonable sounding reasons can, sound, can be so compelling. They can be so compelling. Especially, and, and, and even if you're not, if you're under pressure or you're facing, uh, you know, potentially losing your job or losing relationships or becoming somewhat of an outcast, at least those reasons can sound so compelling. And we looked at a lot of those reasons in our class on uh, the beauty of the Christian sexual ethic. And we showed that it's as compelling and as reasonable as they may sound under scrutiny, they fall apart. They just do. And so what do we do as Christians since that's true? Well, there are thousands of people in the church and out of the church falling for it because of cultural pressure, looming economic insecurity, the fear of becoming a social outcast, or worse. Uh, and just like the arguments that created chattel slavery in the midst of a Christian culture, uh, it didn't happen overnight. There was a progression of compromise. Sin has a progressive nature to it. It makes one little step at a time. We used to believe, as a culture, in uh, something called natural law, that God created all things and that in those things he created, there was inherent meaning. You could look at something and you could understand that there was meaning in that. You could look at how God created people, how he created men and women, and you could see that there was intent and created order and purpose in how he created. But we have unwittingly, almost unconsciously adopted a lot of the uh, foundational beliefs of atheistic evolution, not even theistic evolution, where we no longer believe that there's any inherent meaning in the created order. We've lost that culturally, that understanding. Uh, We used to believe that the greatest virtue for people was to love God, which meant to die to ourself and die to our sinful inclinations. Slowly, over decades and decades now, the greatest virtue is to love yourself, which necessarily means a death to God. And so having those what things that were once foundations of moral reasoning removed from the church, uh, it's become very easy for us, for people to accept things that uh, that uh, we would have never dreamed possible. And it's 
as, 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 as hard as that is, as difficult as that is to stomach, that's not the main sin Jesus is talking about in this passage. The second thing that this teaches us is that given the right cultural pressure, the church can be intimidated to overlook almost anything. The first thing was, given the right cultural pressure, the church can learn to justify almost anything. The second thing is given the right cultural pressure, the church can be intimidated to overlook almost anything. One of the scariest moments uh, of my life as a father was coming home one day after work, and I came into our bedroom, Nisa in my bedroom, and I saw my three kids and a big thing of the wooden matches, and half of them were burned up and laying on, around, on, the, on the floor around my carpet and a wooden dresser. And I was like, <laughs> what are you doing? And they said, we're playing birthday cake. <laughs> they were sitting in my room, lighting multiple matches and putting them on the floor and then blowing them out, pretending that they were birthday cakes. Now, what, what if I, as a dad, if I'd have said, good deal, kids, have fun, and walked out of the room? Would that have been, would that have been good? <laughs> Would that have been loving my kids? What if I said, hey, I got an idea, and I went to the garage, and I brought up some gasoline and a blowtorch, and I said, why don't you try it with that? Would that have been a loving and careful and concerned fatherly response to my kids? No, it wouldn't have. Why? Because they didn't know. They had no idea what they were doing. They thought it was fun. They had no clue how dangerous what it was that they were doing. I did know, and so I had a moral responsibility to not overlook what they were doing and to call it to their attention uh, and to let them know what you're doing is super dangerous. If I had failed to do that, that's what we call a sin of omission. I would have failed to care and love for them because I would have not done what I knew I was supposed to do. And that is what the faithful church of Thyatira is doing. Listen to what Jesus says the main concern is, the big, the sin that he's addressing with this church. Listen, this is verse uh, 19 and 20. He says, He says to this church, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Let's stop right there for a minute. Listen to that. Listen to what he just said about this church. This is almost the opposite. This is almost the anti-church of Ephesus who had lost their love, lost their service, lost their works. Uh, This church not only is faithful, not only is full of love towards each other and to outsiders, not uh, only is it full of works of service that are bridges of the gospel to the world around them, uh, not only are they patiently enduring under suffering, but it's getting better. (laughs) They're getting better at those things. And yet, Jesus says, but... This I have against you. 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, that's believers, to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. The one sin that Jesus is concerned about is that they know this is dangerous. They know that this is destructive. They know that there are believers who are being sucked in to this destruction. And they know that there are unbelievers who are image bearers of God who are being brought into destruction that is going to lead to death. And their response is they don't do anything about it. That's brutal. That's not love. That's not love. They are seeing fellow believers and image bearers ruined and uh, seeing others participating in this and they're overlooking it. They're tolerating it. Not in the new sense of everything is Oh, everything is equally true. They are uh, just allowing it to go on unaddressed. Uh, or worse, they're encouraging them to do it. One of the scariest lines in the Bible is the end of Romans chapter 1 where, where it says, talks about all of the destruction and and, and, and suffering and pain that sinks into the human experience. And at the end of it, it says, and not only do they know these things are going to produce death, but they give hearty approval to those who do it. That is, that is almost a perfect picture of the, 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 the inestimable brilliance of the satanic design. Satan knows us. Satan is a supernatural intelligence. He's not like a smart guy. He's a supernatural intelligence with supernatural power who knows us in and out and is dead set on punishing God by destroying us. And the system is perfect. Not only does he know how to create the complex patterns of brokenness in human experience that create disordered sexuality, then he takes that disordered sexuality and uses it as a way to separate people from the love of God by telling them that they, should, that they are unworthy and that God wouldn't love them. And then, they use, then he then takes all of that and convinces the world that God is unloving. Stunning, stunning in its brutality. Stunning. It is the perfect system of oppression. And I'm going to clarify what I just said. I am not saying that the church was uh, failing to engage things in debatable matters, secondary issues that we can have friendly dialogue about. I'm not saying... The church has a responsibility to jump on anyone who disagrees with secondary or tertiary doctrine. 
not saying that. Also, not saying that this is talking about people who are struggling with various forms of sin. We're all struggling with various forms of sin. This is talking about people who have accepted that sin as good and right in the sight of God and then are there necessarily telling all of their neighbors that their immoral practices and their false religion is perfectly fine with God. Not only have they lost their witness of the truth in the culture, they have become literally persecutors of people by spreading a false idea of who God is. You know, every, when we do the communion almost every week, I say, if you want to know who God is more than you want to tell him who you sh- he should be, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, they have become people who are co-signing everybody's idea of God as they want him to be rather than witnessing to who God really is and therefore are culpable for their destruction. That's what's happening. And the last thing is, this is not an invitation to shoot the hostage. That's the big sin of the church. In uh, defensive and firearms training and close quarter battle training, as you go through clearing rooms in a house, uh, they'll pop targets up and you have to make a split second decision about who's an enemy and who's a hostage. And the worst thing you can do is accidentally shoot the hostage. That's what the church tends to do more often than not. People who have been damaged people who have been broken by the experience of the fallen world and become disordered are not the enemy. They are the hostages of the enemy. And so this is not talking about a license to think badly about or down upon anybody who struggles with certain sins, sexual or not, because we are all sinners. They are hostages that we are called as a church to speak truth to and to rescue from the oppression that they are under. But a lot of times we don't. Why? There's a story about uh, a grocer in the, Czech, in, in the Czech Republic under the reign of communism uh, when there was brute oppression and people were being carried away uh, as any, anyone who expressed any sort of dissidence towards the communist regime were taken off into gulags and all the shopkeepers were required to put a sign up in their windows that said, I support the Communist Party. And this grocer, in an act of supreme bravery, uh, as a dissident against the oppression of that communist system, took that sign and put it up in his window, except he made one little change to it. He said, I support the Communist Party because I'm afraid what will happen to me if I don't. And I think we say that to ourselves. I don't want to be outcast. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be a social pariah. I don't want to be thought of as regressive. I want to be respected. I want to be highly thought of in in the community. You 
and all those things become at risk. And so what that says, what that says, if I'm worried about those things, I'm worried about me. And if I support uh, systems of oppression, if I support publicly sin that I know is leading people into destruction, it means that it's a lot more about me wanting to be loved than it is about loving people. Because loving people calls for us to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, come what may. And that's the big question. So that leads us to a hard uh, another hard question, if that's true. If we're called to love people, even if it's going to mean uh, personal sacrifice, if we're called to love people by caring for them, loving them, speaking truth to them, balancing truth and love together, if we're called to do that and that is going to cause us suffering, how do we do that? How do we even approach that in the culture that we're in? Uh, And the answer is that we keep our eyes on Jesus who has already overcome the world. That's the third part. We keep our eyes on Jesus who has already overcome the world. At the end of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Frodo and Sam finally make it to Mount Doom And at the very end, Frodo breaks under the power of the ring. He breaks under the power of sin and the attraction of evil. And providentially, the ring is still destroyed. And and then Mount Doom erupts in volcanic fury. And Sam and Frodo are sitting on an outjutting of a rock with lava pouring all around them, holding fast, waiting for the end, what they don't know is that the power of evil has already been broken and that Gandalf is literally only minutes away. All they have to do is just hang tight. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Listen to what he says. Verse 24 and 25. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. What's the burden? (laughs) Their faith. Holding to true faith in that culture. That's the burden. And yet, he says, that's all you got to do. Is just hold fast. Just hold fast. I'm coming. We know that he's already overcome the world, Jesus says. Uh, John, the Apostle John, same guy who wrote this book, said that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in what Jesus has done is what overcomes the world. It's what defeats sin. It's what defeats darkness.
One of the commentators that I was reading this week, he put these two things, these two verses together. I'd never seen it before. And I'm surprised, I'm shocked I'd never seen it before. But he's talking about the end of Romans 8 when Paul says, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. And you read that and you always think, man, that just means that we're getting, we're just getting smoked. There's no power in that. But he put that up against the other verse that says uh, that Jesus is the lamb who has been slaughtered. And that by Jesus being the lamb who was slaughtered, that's how he won victory over the world. That was Jesus exercising his power over the world (laughs) by dying being slaughtered for us and winning salvation for all his people. And that we are called to enter into that and model our Savior by being sheep that are slaughtered all day long. But that's not weakness, that's power. By being willing to maintain truth, that is us exercising kingly rule over the earth now That is overcoming, remaining faithful. It is overcoming. And how do we do that? Jesus promises to give us everything that we need to do that. Where does he say that? Listen to this. This is probably the best line in the whole passage, and you'd almost miss it uh, if you're not paying attention. It's so easy to gloss over. And Jesus says at the end, random statement, I will give him the morning star. Now, I love that. It's poetic. It's abstract. You know, you know, if you don't, like, look into it, you have no idea what it means. You just think that Jesus is giving a little bit of rhetorical flourish on the end of his command to Thyatira. But the Bible says, tells us at the end of Revelation, what is the morning star? Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is he saying? He's promising to give himself to us. Everything that he is, everything that he's accomplished, everything that he's done. His sacrifice, his death becomes our death. His righteousness becomes our righteousness the peace that he won for us with God becomes ours. His victory over sin and death becomes ours by believing, by trusting in his work. He gives us himself. But it's more than that. I mean, as amazing as that is, it's even more than that. What is the sign, the symbol, the, the, the imagery of a bright morning star, what is it? It's a picture of, it's actually Venus, Venus which shows up uh, on the horizon right before morning dawns. God created the rotation of the solar system and the stars in such a way and the planets so that Venus would show up as a bright beacon of hope right before dawn broke over the earth so that if you were a watchman, if you had just gone through the terror of the night uh, and when you saw Venus, the morning star shining, 
you knew that that was a sign, meaning the dawn was about to break, the darkness and the cold and the confusion was about to go away, and the sun was about to rise in righteousness over the earth. And so that's what that picture is. Jesus is saying, by my giving myself to you, it's my promise that the night's about to break, that the confusion and the hardness of our hearts is about to be cast away, that the sunlight of the Spirit is about to come bursting forth over the horizon and bring in a whole new era when all of this suffering and confusion and pressure and temptation to sin and propensity to call evil good and good evil and destruction of people is going to end. So maybe you're struggling under that. Maybe you're struggling in some of those sins. Maybe you're struggling under the fear. Maybe you're struggling under the pressure of the world. It may look hopeless, but in the grand scheme of things, Jesus is only minutes away. So hold fast because he's coming. Amen. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. You're the God of power and might. Oh, Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for the churches. We pray for the churches in the West, Lord, who are under so much cultural pressure. Lord, we know you see it. We know that we are not forgotten by you. We know you have such great compassion. Lord, we know you have compassion for your servants who have fallen into the deception. We pray, Lord, that you would rescue them and you would restore them. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that would be the safest place in the world for people to come out of the world and out of corruption and be cared for and loved that we would balance we would be able to balance love and truth together Lord that would bring flourishing and blessing to your people we pray that your truth would reign and that people Lord we pray that you would save people from suffering help us to be beacons of your light Lord we love you and praise you in Jesus name